listening to Truth To You with Jono and G'day to Gail from Georgia, Anthony and Rebecca from Texas, Paul from Alabama, Morgan from Kansas, Christine and Alberta from Canada and wherever you may be around the world, it's good to have your company. It is time for Pearls from the Torah Portion with Keith Johnson and Nehemia Gordon, the caffeinated carite. I'm telling you, you ladies have no and gentlemen, idea. you have no idea. Listen, here, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna throw him under the bus. When, whenever, whenever he gets, whenever he gets on the radio before we start, and I hear, that means he's slurping, and I know what he's slurping. He's slurping coffee. Tell us, Nehemia, what are you drinking? Well, now, for the record, I haven't had caffeine in like probably a month, but I'm, I'm in training right now, so I'm, I'm trying to get in better shape so I can, you know, be healthy, and I'm eating kefir every day, hey. doing the green smoothies. Uh, and uh, doing uh, walking, but then I also got to supplement. That was some caffeine. I need my caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> wait, I thought you said you were so on anyway, caffeine. So, wait, wait, I, <laughs> I got back on caffeine today. Okay. I want to do a shout out to Ellen, who's listening over in uh, Staten Island, New York, and Miri, who I know listens to this program every Shabbat morning. Uh, Miri from Georgia, who's over at the Jerusalem window, listening to this program. Thanks for listening. There it is. <laughs> Today we are in Nassau, Numbers 4, 21 to 7, 89. That's right, folks. Chapter 7 has 89 verses, and we're going to go through every single one. No, we're not. Mm-hmm. So it begins It begins like this. Okay, now, now when we left off, uh, the beginning of Chapter 4, uh, kind of, talk, well, it talks about the duties of the sons of Kohath. This is the duties of the sons of Gershon. And uh, it says that Jehovah spoke to Moses saying, Also take a census of the sons of Gershon by the father's houses, by their families, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. You shall number them, uh, all who enter to perform the service, to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And so okay. it, it, it goes on, it talks about those. It Wait, goes, just a second. Yeah. Just a second. I, I, I got to stop here because I read Doesn't this verse. Every verse? No, no, no. I have to say something about this verse. I think this is really interesting. You know, I, I was over in Rome, mm. and uh, when I was in Rome, I was, uh, you know, digging deep and trying to learn and all this sort of thing. And there's one thing that really hit me that, that really hit me. I was sitting in the, uh, the general audience for the Pope, and the Pope was, uh, came in on his Pope mobile, hey. and they brought, him up to the, they, they, they brought him up to his deal. And he's got like two or three different people that are caring for him as he's going about his business. And they, 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 they sit him down in the chair and they bring him his water. And, and, you know, these are all things that we could look at from a spiritual side. Oh, well, you know, they're, 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 they're kowtowing the guy. But let me tell you why they take care of the Pope. He's old. And when I tell you he's old, he's really old. <laughs> and here I read in this, in this verse, it says, count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age mm-hmm. who come to serve in the work of the 10th of meeting. Now, here's the good news. I'm so excited to be on Torah Pearls. I want to give you guys a hint. I know some of you think that I'm younger than Jono and Nehemia, <laughs> but I'm actually, listen, I'm actually a little bit older. And I am now, I walk faster. But the truth is, when He's I the read this verse, I think, I've ever met. I, I, th- I, think, I think about the, the Pope who's really old, and I'm thinking, he could never serve in the 10th of meeting. He could never be Pontifus whoa, Maximus. Whoa, whoa, he whoa, never... Are you saying that just... when the third temple is built and the Messiah is reigning as king over Israel, the Pope will not be allowed to serve in the temple. Is that what you? What I'm me? saying is it? that based on this verse, I now bet. if I'm wrong, no, no. If I'm wrong, you guys can correct me. That if you were 51 years old, mm. you would not serve in the tenth of meeting. Am I right or wrong? Well, now you've got me thinking. Go Keith. off. No, well, because I mean, Go off on your Aaron, Aaron, right? Uh, the 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 
high priest. I mean, as high priest, so actually, let's... this is for, this is for Levites. Actually, it's not. This is for Levites. Okay, so for for, for the, the Levites, the the assist, and that's a lot of people confuse Levites and priests or Kohanim. Kohanim are Aaron and his direct descendants, who are a subgroup within the Levites. And remember, uh, Georgia of blessed memory was mm. a Rhodesian Ridgeback. All dog or no, how's it go? All Ridgebacks are dogs, but not all dogs are Ridgebacks, which is a shame. <laughs> okay. So here's the softball. I'm trying to. I'm giving so, you guys the softball. So all Kohanim or all Kohanim are Levites, but not all Levites are Kohanim. Okay. So, so can I? Sorry, Keith. Can I just ask this question? So the, the the subgroup within the Levites, the Kohanim, are they? I mean, do they serve until they just drop, or I mean, that's what it sounds like. Well, here's what I wanted to bring up. This is what I wanted to well, bring up. Come Ailey, on, who, Ailey, who was who was the high priest in you know time of Samuel? Yeah. Um, he literally, he <laughs> literally did. He dropped. He, served he literally time. served till he fell over backwards yeah. and died. Broke his neck, okay. I think. So, so let's, this is why I was bringing yeah. this up, you guys. So here oh. we have the people that claim Levitical, the, the Levitical priesthood. Those who say, look, we're Levites, pay us our tithe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This happens in the church. It happens in the Methodist church. It happens in all the denominations. Mm. And they, they claim the Levitical aspect. Now, if you're not claiming, if you are claiming uh, uh, the actual Cohen, if you're saying, oh, I'm a Cohen, then, then, then therefore, you know, maybe that, that's what the present uh, Catholic Church's deal is. I know what they said in the introduction was that he claimed rights back to Peter mm-hmm. as, the first, uh, as the first pope. That's what they said publicly. But my point was, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, well, I know for sure that uh, for me anyway, I don't think of myself as a, as, as a Cohen. I don't think of myself as a high priest. Who knows? Maybe now that I've joined myself, I can say oh, look, I've got some sort of Levitical connection. But the good news I was trying to get to on this whole thing was that at 50, you could serve in the 10th of meeting, but at 51, you'd retire. Yeah, so all the Levites, okay, so you're pointing out that all the Levites that serve are under 50 years old. And what I'm excited about is I'm now 51 years old, and I feel like I can now retire. There you go. (laughs) That's my whole point. I I wasn't claiming to be the Cohen, and I know the Pope is not a Cohen because he's German. His name is Ratzinger. I I know he's not a Cohen. So really, he's too old to be serving as a Unless he, hey, unless he claims he's listen, a Keith, while we're on it, I mean, that's the reason why they choose them so crusty is because they don't really want them to last that long. They like to turn them over and, you know, keep, oh. it, keep it interesting. No, I'm serious. They like, no, when, when they're choosing them, they take this into consideration. They don't, they don't want someone right. to linger on and linger on and linger on. They want to keep it fresh, fresh faces, you know. Let's, let's not get too... So keep it fresh with, an, with a really, really old guy? Yeah, no, I'm serious because they they're gonna they're gonna. Well, it's a job for life. It's so a job for life. So the sooner you years, die, that's right. Years is bad enough. It's seriously one of the things I take into consideration when they determine which one's going to be the representative of whatever. So, um, but I think it's really right. slack <laughs> because they they drag these poor old blokes around and say, "Hey, now we're going to this country, and now kiss the ground, and we're going to this country, and we're going to do this." And you can look at them, and they get they. Tell you what, they I, have age cer- I have a certain level of respect now that I've come back from Rome, some di- different aspects that I have a certain level of respect. I, I, but I just wanted to say that I just thought it was interesting that we start this verse out, staying with the Torah portal in the portion, is that this idea that if you served as a Levite in the tent of meeting at 50, your shtick was up. Mm. At 51, you're not up. serving anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so That's right. I, I just... Those, and so it goes you know, on. It goes on to talk about the sons of Mary. We're, we're going to come back to the Pope. We're not done with him. I got more to say about the Pope. <laughs> it goes on and take. There's a census of the Levites, and okay. uh, and and well, I mean it, it adds it all up. And from thirty to to fifty, Keith, there's eight Jewish accountants, eight thousand five hundred and eighty of them, and okay. uh, and it, it from from uh, thirty to fifty. 
Verse 49, according to all the, uh, to the commandment of Yehovah, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, each according to his service and according to his task. Thus were they numbered by him as Yehovah commanded Moses and Nehemiah, the Pope. No, no, I'll, I'll get back to him. I, oh, I won't forget. Okay, okay. We're going to move on. We're going to move on. So. Later in the program, I, I got some, I'm, I'm, I'm going to play a card. But I would like to say now. I would like to say something in the history of Torah pearls. In mm. the history of Torah pearls, check every program for yourself, ladies and gentlemen. Jono has never gotten through a, that much scripture that quick. He is he is on a roll. Let's move on. <laughs> so the reason I, I got to say there's a reason. Hallelujah. <laughs> the reason is is because we've got some real big, huge pearls, and it's okay. right in the middle of this Torah portion, so we've got to okay. hammer through this. These are diamonds. They're not even pearls. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, they're, gotcha. they're diamonds. And okay. uh, in Yehovah, chapter 5, Yehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whomever becomes defiled by a corpse. Now, Nehemiah, I do believe that you were referring to this verse, if I remember correctly. When I was commenting on how the Christians, you know, in regards to Leviticus 15 and the laws of Neder, and they say to you, oh, so you're going to kick your wife out of the house and outside the gates every time she's the time of the month. And, you know, and where do you get that from? Well, this is, this is the one, right? Well, that, that's how they interpret this. That's how but, they uh, interpret it. Um, the, the way I read it is this is talking specifically. It doesn't say out of your city. It's specifically talking about the camp. And there's a, an idea we see later in Deuteronomy. And I think we did talk about this, but I'll just repeat it real quick. Uh, we talked, um, there's a section in Deuteronomy that talks about when you're in the army camp, when you go out to war, Yehovah walks in that camp. Mm. And um, in that context, uh, if you want to go to the bathroom, you've got to dig a hole and, and bury your feces because the camp is holy. It's a holy place. Go outside. And that's what they're talking about here. They're talking about the camp being a holy place. And, um, and so these specific types of uh, ritual impurity, the people had to go outside the main camp and there's some question about whether they actually had to go outside the entire camp. The way this has certainly historically been interpreted in Jewish sources is that was talking about, you know, we just got finished talking about the Levites um, who were protecting the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And so this is uh, understood, um, certainly in rabbinical sources, as referring to uh, that's that camp of the Levites, that they would, that if there was, let's say, a woman who was uh, in, in a time of her period, that she would then distance herself from the tabernacle and be outside the camp of the Levites, and that's because the food of the Levites was food that was offered as holy things in the temple. Mm. And if you've touched a dead body, or if you um, or a woman uh, during her time isn't allowed to actually um, uh, touch those things. Although actually, if you read this very uh, 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 closely, it doesn't uh, specifically refer to the woman in her regular period. It says a zav, male or female. And if you remember, we talked about the zav was the unusual period. Mm -hmm. It was the one that went beyond seven days. Or it was multiple days not in her regular time, mm -hmm. which you know usually is explained as a miscarriage. So it's those specific narrow circumstances that those people would be sent outside the camp, and probably only the camp of the Levites, not the entire camp, because you know then you'd have a bunch of people out in the desert, mm. which you know doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, the lepers they may have sent outside the entire camp because then you know that that's a communicable disease, presumably quarantine, right? Um, whatever. Although we don't exactly know what leprosy was, but it yeah. sounds even from the descriptions we have in, in, for example, in Kings, that the lepers were outside mm -hmm. the cities because it apparently was a communicable disease of some sorts, um, even though if it wasn't Hansen's disease. So in any event, this probably is talking about these very narrow uh, circumstances, and even in the narrow circumstances, it's talking them not being among the Levites who are protecting the tabernacle from becoming ritually impure. There it is. And then Yehovah spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. 
when a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against Jehovah, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sin, which he has committed, and he shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. So that's 20%, right? But if the man has no... It's the principle plus 20%. So, And can we stop here? What is this talking about? Like, if you just read up until, I don't know, about halfway through verse 7, you'd say, okay, he's he's committed some kind of wrong, a trespass is literally, translate the Hebrew... Um, how would what what would you think this meant? And I think a lot of people reading this would say, "Oh, he's you know stolen something from God." Um, but then we hear he will give it to he, him who he has um, committed the offense against. Mm-hmm. So this is actually this is actually repeating something that we read over in Leviticus chapter five, verses twenty to twenty six. And, and I think at the time we may have mentioned that this is paralleled here in Numbers five, um, and there it explains the situation. Uh, and maybe we could read that real quick. It talks about, it gives a bunch of different scenarios. You find something that belongs to somebody else and you decide to keep it, even though you're commanded to return it. You know, you find somebody's, you know, um, gold watch and you say, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a really nice gold watch. I'm not going to return this. And then you're confronted and you say, no, I don't have that gold watch. Or you, um, and you swear falsely about it even. Um, Or uh, you steal or you um, exploit or extort money from someone. And in those situations, you're actually um, you're committing the sin against your fellow. And what's so interesting is the way it words it. Maybe you could read verse 6. Maybe Keith can read in his translation verse 6. Because the way it describes it is you're sinning against your fellow man, but that's that's an offense against God, mm-hmm. which I, I, mean, I find amazing. And like like if you read just verse 6, you wouldn't get that. But you get to verse 7, you realize, wait a minute, the offense against who we, uh, you know the person he's offended against, well, isn't that God? And we look at the parallel here in, in Leviticus uh, 5, and it's very clear that we're not dealing with uh, um, what we would think of as an offense against God, um, but God's telling you it is an offense against him. Keith, what do you got in 6? When a man or woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, the person is guilty. There it is. And must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it to all the persons he has wronged. Okay. So the person he has wronged isn't God. And if you look over in the parallel, and actually in the English it's Leviticus uh, 6, um, one through uh, seven in the Hebrew, it's Leviticus wait, five twenty three twenty to twenty six. What? Wait, wait. Hold so, on. So, so can, there's. Can I? Can I, re- can I re- I'm sorry, Nehemiah. Sure. You'll, you'll just have to let me slow down here a little bit. I'll slow, I feel a I'll little bit down. like okay. Moses. I feel a little bit like Moses right now, where he he saw the yeah. fire burning and it, it was not consumed, and so he slowed down <laughs> and he took a look, a second look, and it says that when <laughs> Yehovah noticed that Moses was coming, then he spoke to him. So now I want to slow down and everyone slow down with me. It says, again, you, you brought this up now. Are you guys sure you want to bring up this verse? Okay, let's do it. It says, when a man or woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful okay. to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for the wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it to all the persons he is wrong. I mean, so that... that- yeah, that's amazing. Go ahead. You've sinned against by sinning by uh, sinning against your fellow man. You sinned against God. And let me read real quick the description of this in Leviticus six in the English, so you understand what we're dealing with. Um, so it says, if anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord to Jehovah by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him or left in his care or stolen or if he cheats him or if he finds lost property and lies about it or if he swears falsely or he commits any such sin that people may do. When he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must turn that uh, what he has stolen or taken by extortion 
or what was entrusted to him or the lost property he found, whatever it was he swore falsely about, he must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. So you've got, he sins against his fellow man, but that in itself is an offense against God. That is a sin so, against God, which, which so wait a that's an amazing concept. You know, we, 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 I think a lot of times we think like, oh, you know, you, you've offended God, you've offended your fellow man. Um, but I'm, I'm all right with God because I pray every day and I, you know, Look. keep these commandments and I'm very careful about the ritual commandments. And I, you know, but here it's saying if you, if you sin against your fellow man, you're not right with God. You've sinned against God so, himself. So, if, so for those that are listening that, that tend to start at the Ooh, back, hallelujah. No, no. So those that, Wait, that listen that, Wait, that listen that start at the back of their book, you know, in the English Bible, everyone knows this that there's there's this what they call the and Jono, I know this isn't you. You can't tell me it's not true. You have what's called the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right. So there's this, this this big old book, the Old oh, and the New, and and what a lot of people do is they they start at the back of the book, mm-hmm. meaning they start with the New, and then they figure every once in a while if there's a good story they'll they'll do it. Now what we're doing in Torah pearls is we're starting at the beginning of the Torah Amen. in Genesis and English through Deuteronomy, and, and this is the traditional portions that uh, have been read throughout a long, long period of time. Mm-hmm. And here we are in Numbers chapter 5, and Nehemiah wants to slow down and talk about this verse. Well, certainly he expects for me, th- th- having been one who was conditioned to read the back of the book first, that if I now am reading the beginning of the book, I'm still asking the question, where's the connection with the back of the book? Ha, mm-hmm. here we go. So what's the connection with the back of the book? Instead of me starting, I'm going to just ask Jono. He's, he's got his Bible there. Okay. Jono, do you see anything? Because I have something. And Nehemiah, you even might, because you've, got, you've, you've flirted with the uh, New Testament a little bit yourself, um, specifically uh, in let, terms let, of the let's text. Let's be clear. I've, I've uh, studied the New Testament. <laughs> uh, you know, let, let's be very clear we about that. A, we, as I always, okay, when I I always make flirted, it very clear that I'm... That I'm a Karaite okay. Jew. I'm not Messianic, Excellent. not Christian. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I make that very clear. So the question clear. is, so I've studied it as is... an ancient historical Jewish <laughs> document, which you know, sometimes okay, Nehemiah, it's like okay. writing okay. ancient no rabbis in the Dead Sea. I would like to, I'd like to say he has not flirted uh, it, flirted it. He studied it deeply. Now let's move on. Okay, so the question is, is this represented in the back of the book? Is it represented in the back of the Christian Bible? Will we? Keith, we have to say that it is, right? I mean, it's mentioned in Matthew chapter 5. Do you have it there? What do you mean? You've got a chapter and verse? I've got a chapter and verse. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. So wait a minute. Okay, so read it. Therefore, if you bring your gifts to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your, your gifts. Here's what I want to say in honor to both Nehemiah and Jonah. First of all, Nehemiah, and I want to say to everyone, it has been an honor to actually study the New Testament. Uh, I, I approach that New Testament, as we say, as a sacred text from my experience, my background. Nehemiah approached that text as a, as a textual scholar. And would you agree, Nehemiah, as a result of studying some parts of the New Testament, specifically Matthew and the prayer and certain aspects of, of, of Matthew, Hebrew Matthew, that, that we were both surprised and actually... Uh, encouraged by the fact that there were so many things in the New Testament that we studied that actually was actually rooted in the Torah. Hmm. Am I right? Well, I, I, you know, it's it's interesting you say that because I'm I'm looking now back, um, you know, being a, I guess a little bit older and wiser than I was many years ago, and you know, and 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 if you if you would have asked me, I don't know, ten years ago or really more like fifteen or twenty years ago, um, as a Karite Jew, do you think there's anything of value in the Talmud? I would said nah. Throw that book out, or stick it under your bed to prop it up when it's you know lopsided. 
that book, that's just deception. You don't want anything to do with that. And what I found out is that, you know, it's, it's something Maimonides said, which was, I think, very profound. He was a rabbi in the 12th century. He said, learn the truth from whoever speaks it. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that, is that in the writings of the ancient rabbis, there's a lot of truth. And just because they said it, and, and I, you know, and, and, and I don't agree with everything they said, and I'm not a disciple of theirs, doesn't mean that I should throw away, you know, I shouldn't throw it under the bus. I shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's a lot of wisdom there that could be learned. And and I think it's the same thing in a way with, with, you know, with what you find in in the teachings of Yeshua, that, you know, there are things that he taught that are very profound. And what he managed to do, which I think is so brilliant, and which I've really come to appreciate, is, you know, we could be reading through this chapter, um, which, you know, Let's say it again. It's kind of written by Jewish accountants, <laughs> and it's you know giving you a detailed instruction of how to carry out these commandments in different scenarios. And he comes and brings you this picture, this beautiful parable that even if you're a simple you know um, you know illiterate uh, fisherman like Peter was, you you know you hear that and you're like, oh okay, I, I don't know about all those things that the priests are talking about, but you know I have a I'm bringing a sacrifice and I've got an offense against my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, I better leave that there and go reconcile with my neighbor. And, uh, you know, does he remember that's from uh, Numbers chapter five verses, you know, five through 10, maybe not, but if, you know, but, you know, me being, being, (laughs) being the Jewish scholar, I go back and look at that and I say, okay, you know, this is actually, that's, I mean, they're saying the same thing. And what they're both saying is that if you sin against your fellow man, don't try to, you know, just brush that under the carpet and then go, um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, don't brush that under the carpet and then think you can be okay with God if you bring sacrifices. There may be a sacrifice here, but first you've got to be reconciled with your fellow man. If you've stolen from him or 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 damaged his property, you better uh, make full restitution, be all right with your fellow man, and then you can bring your sacrifice of expiation. Then we can talk about dealing with God because you can't deal with God until if you until you first reconciled with your fellow man and. Um, you know, one of the things, okay. that, and here I'm going to, uh, okay. no, hold, hold on, I've, I've got to say this, I'm going to address my, my fellow Jews, Christians, Messianics, put your ear, your fingers in your ears, you don't need to hear this, <laughs> what I'm going to say to my fellow Jews is a lot of them, what they'll do is they'll throw Jesus under the bus, they'll say, that guy, you know, look at look what was been done in his name for the last 2,000 years, he's the one who said, judge, uh, judge, judge something by its fruits, and we've seen what the fruits of his teaching are, it was the Crusades, and it was the um, the disputations and eventually the Holocaust. Mm. We want nothing to do with that tree that produced those fruits. And what I would say to my fellow Jews is um, those are fruits that were produced not by this tree because this, this tree was actually a Jew whose teachings were co-opted. And if you go back and actually look at what he taught, it's actually the very same things that our sages taught, the very same things that our Torah teaches mm-hmm. and that we hold holy and sacred – and let's not throw him under the bus just because of the things that were done in his name that really had very little to do with anything he taught or represented. So let's give the guy, you know, give the poor guy a break. It's like, it's almost like, and I'm, maybe this has to be edited out because it's too controversial, but it, I feel it's almost like what the Christians have done is they've crucified Jesus a second time by defaming his name with their horrific actions and their poisonous fruit. I think, look, Nehemiah, let me say, I think it is fair to say that they have certainly taken the historical Yeshua and and crucified his identity. There's absolutely no, no doubt about that. I think that's I think that's very fair to say. Keith, can I ask you a question? Can I just ask you, what have you got in Matthew 5, 23 in your translation? 23 and 24. Okay. 
I'm sorry. I'll go to Matthew five, and then I, I would like to uh, spin the card. I know we're. I know we've got to keep uh, keep going here. Did I leave the reservation? Do we need. <laughs> That's okay. You stay right where you're at, Nehemiah. Just just hold on. We're not going to ask you any more questions. Okay, hold on here. So five twenty three. Therefore, if you are offering your gift on uh, at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and reconcile to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Okay, that's interesting. Yours and mine are exactly the same. What, what, yeah. were, you, what were you going to add? Can I, can I read what, what it says? Uh, no, Nehemiah. Sorry, okay. uh, Nehemiah. So Hebrew Matthew five twenty three to twenty four is uh, If you bring your korban, your sacrifice to the altar, that's something that's mentioned in a different place. He actually uses the word korban in the Greek in another passage. Mm. Uh, and you remember that there was a a. a uh, a matter of judgment with your friend, and he is uh, enraged against you, from some matter. In verse 24, leave your sacrifice there before the altar, and, and, and first uh, go and uh, appease him, or get uh, acceptance from him. And that's a very interesting word, because that's the word that's used always in the con- context of sacrifices in, in biblical Hebrew. Lerazot is to get acceptance from God, to make it right with God. Um, it, it's a technical term that refers to sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And here, you cho- the choice of this word, I think, is very significant. What he's saying is, don't try to get acceptance from God from your sacrifices until first you get acceptance from the guy you've wronged. Mm. And afterwards, bring your sacrifice, which is you know very interesting um, uh, as a side note about what he's saying. You know, he's not abolishing the whole sacrificial system. He's just saying within the something that actually many of the prophets said, which is you know don't bring me uh, rivers of oil and 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 blood. You know, do righteousness, and mm. you know, and then we can talk. Yep, no, fair enough. Very, very good, Keith. So, Jono, I just wanted to say, one of the things that I've, this is one of the reasons that I appreciate you in terms of uh, the way that you've walked this line with Nehemiah and myself and the way that you have um, mediated it, though I think sometimes you've got to do a better job of telling Nehemiah to be quiet so I can talk. But other than that, <laughs> I think you've done a phenomenal job. But let me say this. One of the things that I think you've also been able to do is so we could, so a situation like this right away, we say, so where is that? And you're able to say, well, isn't that Matthew 5? Well, Look, in order for you to be able to do what you've done, you've got to, you've had to know both sides. You've had to know what's going on in the New Testament. That's been your upbringing. That's been where you have been. You've had to also uh, embrace and learn what's going on in the, in the Torah, both through language and under that. So I think this is what's so powerful about the role that you're playing, other than your beautiful reading and the way that you ask questions back and forth. This is stuff that you know. And so I want to tell you that that's, that's no small thing. That you've been able to uh, uh, to do that. So thanks for thanks for thanks for bringing up Matthew five. Can I add one more thing? Which is which? No. Is, may, may I add one more thing? Maze. <laughs> <laughs> no. So you know it's kind of funny because I'll go around and I'll, I'll speak to um, you know to, to Christian groups and messianic groups and you know and I'm not Christian or messianic. I tell them that up front. Mm. And sometimes I'll get people who will come up to me and they're very upset. They'll say, "Well, we're." where's Jesus and what you just said? Where's Jesus? And I, and I say to them, what are you talking about? Um, you know, like I'll give, a, I'll give a talk on the Hebrew origins of the Lord's Prayer and, and show how it's really teaching things that were taught in the Tanakh. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, where's Jesus and what you just taught? And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Everything I said had to do with Jesus because mm. he taught these exact things. Mm. Um, <laughs> so how could you say, where's Jesus in this? You know, and, and I get the impression, and, and maybe this isn't in my place to say as a Jew, but I sometimes get the impression that people have such... Uh, you know that they they say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe anything he actually said. <laughs> mm. It's like we want the man and the, and the image of the man, 
but we don't want what he actually represented and taught and, and lived his ministry and, and life for and, and frankly was eventually you know killed for mm. um, uh, and died for. I mean, that isn't I mean, am I naive here? I mean, well, you know, if, listen, if these I, are the things I, I don't know. Look, uh, we can we can we could go back and forth and talking about how people are conditioned through tradition. Mm. I like that conditioned through tra- tradition, and so uh, many Christians have been conditioned through tradition. Many Jews have been conditioned through tradition, and I think Amen. again that's why it's so powerful for us to do this because what we're trying to do is we're coming from these different places, but the common ground is the Torah itself. Amen. And saying, what does the Torah say? So here was an example where a pearl came out, and we were able to connect it with the tradition or the understanding of the back of the book, uh, mm-hmm. and then bring it forward and say, wow, this is where he got it from. I think that's an example of eyes being open, and it's a great opportunity for us to say a prayer that we continue to find uh, out where our eyes can be open to see the hidden things. That is a that's a great. I'm glad you brought that up, Keith, because we're we, we need to pray that prayer before we continue from verse 11. Nehemiah, yes. um, Psalm 119, oh, verse did, 18. I did it last week. Let's oh, let's have Jono do it finally. It's, must be must be my turn. Jono, do it with your your funny accent. But Psalm 119, verse 18, <laughs> and it says in my funny accent, it says, Yehovah, would you open our eyes that we may see the wondrous thing? Wondrous hidden things from your Torah. Amen. 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 And this and this is certainly <laughs> one of the most wondrous. This is something I've wondered about a lot. Okay, and I'm I'm just going to start reading it. And this is what it says: Yehovah spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully towards him, and a man lies with her cunningly and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed." that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and uh, he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, uh, and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephra of barley meal, and shall pour no oil on it, and shall put no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, is what I've got, for bringing iniquity into remembrance. Mm. And, and the priest shall bring her near, set it before Jehovah, and the priest shall take the holy water in an earthen vessel. Holy water, Keith. Here's some holy water. Mm. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel. Can I just stop there and ask you out of curiosity? Is, that what, have, you, is that what you use against vampires? That's, yeah, that's holy what water. I thought. Did you have holy water in the, uh, in the, in the Methodist tradition, Keith? No, we never had holy water. Okay, just just curious. When you went to the the Vatican and uh, St. Peter's and all of that, did you? Yes, have they did have they do have holy water. Uh, many places have holy water in their uh, the churches. Very yes. good. And to, so, so tell so tell a simple Karai who you know what, what exactly is. I mean, I, I've seen it in the movies and stuff. Yeah, what, vampires. What, what really is? No, other than the vampires. Yeah, what you make sure water? there's no vampires in the Vatican. No, I mean, what you... no come on. What, what is it really? Keith, okay. <laughs> uh, it's water that's holy. <laughs> It is. No, you know what? So what you know, it, I used to look. Honestly, I don't know that much about uh, Catholicism, but I lived next to a Catholic. Well, he he was a professing Catholic. He never went to church or anything, but he was upset one week, and I noticed uh, the priest turned up with his little bottle, and I asked him, uh, my next door neighbour, I said, "So what's going on there?" And he goes, "Oh, you know, this that the other, a bit upset, blah blah blah." So I rang the priest, and he came around with his bottle and just um and uh, he anointed the hey, he went through the house and splashed the holy water everywhere. And I said, well, so what does that do? Uh, you know, it just makes it better. That's <laughs> all I can. Really. That's all I can tell. That's my experience. Keith, can you help us out here? Well, 
No, well, listen. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't have the information about it. I mean, let's just let's just well, say that <clears throat> there are many things. There are many yeah. things like that <clears throat> that are in uh, symbolic and et cetera. And this, this that's just one of them. But I mean, here, I guess my bigger question is: He says then he shall take some holy water. So what's this holy water? That's a good question, and I think that I think that goes back to uh, Leviticus eleven thirty six, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it talks about. Uh, and I'll just read that real quick. It says, a spring, however, or a cistern for collecting water remains clean, but anyone who touches one of these carcasses is unclean, meaning a carcass of certain animals that fall in it. Mm-hmm. Um, if the water has been put on the sea... So basically what it's talking about here is that um, you know, if you have, let's say, a spring of water, which has a pool next to it, and the carcass of a, of a, um, you know, a rat falls into it, mm. then, um, then that water doesn't become ritually unclean because you know, that's water. It's essentially part of nature. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you take the water in a cup and then the rat falls in the cup, well, then, then that water is ritually unclean. Um, and, uh, and so I think here holy water simply means water that is ritually clean, that hasn't been defiled, which pro- probably would be most water. Because uh, it's an earthenware vessel here, that would probably be most water that you know you just took out of a clean source. Um, okay. I think that's what holy water would be in this context. All right. So okay. There, there it is. So it's nothing too mystical. But then he takes the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and he puts it in the water. And then the priest shall stand before uh, stand the woman before Yehovah, uncover the woman's head, and put an offering for. Oh, we yeah. got to we got to stop okay. here. Is Uncovers that what you have, Keith? Uncover the woman's head. Let's see here. Ver, give me, give me that, give me that verse. Eighteen, verse eighteen. Yeah, verse eighteen. That's the one. So, verse eighteen. It says, uh, "After the five. priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and loosen place her, her hair. hand." And what it really hand. says is, he will mess up the mess up the head of the woman. Is what it literally says. And what that is referring to is that the style that people wore in ancient times, uh, women, I guess, especially, but men too, is they would have locks of hair. And what he comes and does is he undoes the locks of their hair. And um, in certain contexts, that was a sign of mourning, in fact. Um, now, one of the weird things that's been done with this passage, and I find this, to be honest with you, entirely bizarre, is people have taken this passage and said, this is a proof that a woman needs to always have her hair covered. Because when he uncovered her hair, that was a special circumstance. Um, have you heard that? Have you guys heard that? I have heard that, actually. I have. Yeah. I haven't heard it from okay. this verse. No. Okay. And, and I haven't heard it from Jews. I've heard it because, you know, what I've heard that from is, I guess, from, you know, people who are trying to follow the Torah from, mm. you know, the, the Christian um, and Messianic perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what, what they're missing here is, first of all, it means to mess up her hair. <laughs> um, I mean, he, he's essentially, you know, undoing her locks. And secondly, even if it meant to uncover her hair, this would actually prove that a woman isn't required to cover her hair because that means essentially – because the argument that's made – um, and you'll hear this essentially from Muslims, you know, the Muslims will say, well, you know, the woman has to cover her hair. Otherwise, uh, you know, she, you wouldn't walk around without a shirt. A woman wouldn't walk around without a shirt. So why would she walk around with her hair uncovered? Mm-hmm. It's considered a, um, um, a nakedness essentially. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and, and that's very different from even traditional Judaism where um, only a married woman covers her hair. Uh, unmarried woman would never cover her hair. Mm. Um, it's just, I mean, unless it was hot outside and she <laughs> wanted, you know, she wanted to put a hat on. But um, as far as like ritually covering her hair, she would only do that if she was married. And frankly, the reason that she did that is that you know people lived in 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 a rough neighborhood, you know, in the in the old days. Mm. And if the woman didn't cover her hair, then the Gentiles would come and say, "Oh, she's unmarried," and kidnap her and uh, 
you know, and, and take her as their wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's covering her hair so the Gentiles didn't see her and, and kidnap her. That's really where that comes from. But in Islam, it's a different concept because even unmarried women uh, among the Muslims cover their hair because the women's hair is considered nakedness. Um, and then some messianics, for some reason, have adopted that concept as well. Um, that a woman's hair is considered nakedness, but this proves it's not nakedness because you can't be naked in the temple. We have a commandment. We read mm-hmm. that in Exodus 20 that, that you even go to the, the the extreme measure of not having steps. You have a ramp, so when the mm. priest is walking up. You don't see his nakedness. So the idea that a woman would uncover her hair and be naked in the temple is is ridiculous. That would never happen. Sure. And this proves that a woman's hair is not nakedness. And you know, and and we don't need to be afraid of a, of a woman's sexuality and and her beauty. Her hair is her beauty, and that's a gift from Jehovah, a gift Amen. from God. It's not an ugly, disgusting thing. It's something that God's blessed us with, mm-hmm. with, and we should we should you know we should celebrate that and not be afraid of that. Grand. Can I get an amen, John? Amen. Or you can- amen. <laughs> and so he's like, "What that?" <laughs> Methodist got it right. <laughs> The offering for he puts the offering for remembrance in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy, and the priest shall wave in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse is uh, is what I have here, and the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man is lame with you, and if you have not uh, gone astray to uncleanness while, and then it goes on to say under your husband's and in italics authority, and the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man is lame with you, and if you have not gone astray. So uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband is lame with you, then the priest shall put the woman under oath uh, of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, Yehovah, make you a curse and an oath among your people when Yehovah makes your thigh rot and your belly swell, and may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot, then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Now, this is this is super, super weird. This is, um, I've got to say, a, a passage of Scripture that I have often wondered about. And I thought, what, what strange things is going on here? What is it with the thigh rotting and the belly swelling? Not only that, but as we read on, we see that that the priest then writes uh, all of this out, scrapes. It seems like he scrapes the words off into the water that has the the holy water that has the dust of the tabernacle. He blots them out. He he takes water and dissolves the ink. He dissolves the, the ink, ink into, the, into the and then she has to drink in, that into water. the mixture. Right. Okay, Nehemia. I mean, seriously, what uh, what is going on here? Because the it's, end of it's it, it's some interesting stuff. I don't know. You know. So what we're seeing here is that, that there was this miraculous event that would take place if a, a man would you know be overcome with the spirit of jealousy and um he would have this option of bringing her to the tabernacle and later the temple and she would essentially be tested in a way um and you know and there a blessing would come out of it if it turned out that she was innocent and if she was guilty then this miraculous you know there would be a miraculous blessing mm-hmm. and there would also be a miraculous curse if she um if she you know w- was sinning and you know uh essentially this is showing the the power and, and miraculous nature of of the you know of, of god's presence in the tabernacle mm-hmm. it also shows you the power of the written word that this you know this written word that's then dissolved and put into the into this mixture um you know has this effect that you know it causes the woman's um you know basically to die or to get extremely sick and um you know, so so uh, I think this ha- has a miraculous thing. Um, I think one thing to point out to people is that since we don't have a temple or a tabernacle, 
that this is something that we can read about and study about, mm. but it doesn't have a practical application today. Um, the True. only practical application I would say is that if you're jealous of your wife, um, that you know, in, in some religions and some cultures, merely accusing a woman of of adultery is or a man is enough to you know for them to be guilty. I mean, there's this horrible movie um, called The Stoning of Soraya. Uh, which is actually a movie made in Iran, and it's in Persian, the language of Iran, and it shows how this woman is is um, uh, accused of adultery and eventually stoned, and there's no witnesses to her actually committing adultery. Mm. There's witnesses to innuendo and um, an assumption about what took place, but there's no actual witnesses. And what this is saying here is if you don't have any witnesses, you can go to, before God and there can be this test, but you can't stone the woman uh, for committing adultery. If you, you know, if you want to be able to prove adultery, you need to either go through this miraculous test, or you need to, or you need to bring actual witnesses. And I think that's a very important point. That you know, accusing somebody of something they've done without proof, without solid evidence, mm-hmm. um, you know, is is it's not valid. So I mean, it doesn't it doesn't stand. So my question is this: your thigh rot and your belly swell is is that what it says in Hebrew? Is there a deeper meaning to that, or is that really is it just literal? Well, it says your belly swell and and literally your your thigh fall, um, whatever that means. Uh, maybe fall off. I don't know. It's, it's okay. not very clear. Your thigh. And I hope I hope we never get we never get a chance to see this in action. I pray, um, and I mean anyone. Um, I think when the temple is restored, I'm pretty sure this won't need to be tested. I hope so. Um, so. Well, now listen, yeah. let me just say what I've got. I found it interesting because in my yeah. in my New King James Study Bible, in the study notes, this is what it says for verse 21. Your thigh rot and your belly swell. It says symbolically speaks of a miscarriage of an illicit child if the woman was pregnant and uh, an inability to conceive subsequently. Uh, in the biblical world, a woman who was unable to bear children was regarded as being under a curse. In this case, it would have been true. Do, it, do, does that ring a bell with you in any way in the in the Hebrew? I mean, does that... It's a cute idea, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that, but I guess what it's tying it to is uh, verse 28 that says, But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. Okay. Why would it so have she's not, to mix? So that, w- that would imply that she's not pregnant. <laughs> Okay, I guess so. So, you know, so she's obviously, you know, yeah. That's bizarre. But, it's, I mean, look, let's be honest here. Let's call, let's call a spade a spade. This is a weird passage. It's super weird. It's, it, it's weird. It is. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, but I think what it is recognizing is that is that there are, you know, that's human nature to be jealous. Um, but, you know, and it's human nature to be suspicious. Mm-hmm. But, you know, give the give the woman the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. and the man um you know the concept i think this is actually a pretty revolutionary concept which later became well, we take it for granted as part of western law which is innocent until proven guilty and i think that's the, that's the clear principle here that you know you can be jealous and accuse somebody of something but you but unless there's clear evidence either yep. through this miraculous event or through witnesses the person has to be deemed innocent Fair enough. Uh, until you can prove them guilty with you know by one of these means, and that actually is a revolutionary idea. You know, we take it for granted, but it, it's not obvious, mm. um, or it's obvious in retrospect, but it certainly isn't part of the general tradition of, of um, you know of ancient law. And so that that is a revolutionary thing the Torah is giving us here. There it is. Fair enough. Moving on, Keith, chapter six. What I don't understand is why would you put up a, up your hand and say I'm just not. I don't want to drink wine anymore. I don't want to eat grapes. I don't. 
one sultana's um gonna shave my head wait so i wanted to say one thing it says then this this then you know you guys call this weird and you know i actually look at it just a little bit different it says this then is the law of jealousy when a woman goes astray and defiles herself while married to her husband and i just think this idea that he says this is the law of jealousy or uh maybe nechemi you'll give us if it's a different word i'm looking at my niv here but just this concept that it was something that, that would be addressed. And, you know, t- the fact that it was addressed means that it must be important. So to me, when I look at this, I, mean, I may not know all the reasons that the thigh waste and the sump- stomach swells, but I do understand it was important enough to have it in the Torah, which obviously means that it was something that needed to be addressed. And so that's, that's the way I looked at it. I guess I wasn't so caught up on how this would be revealed as much as that it needed to be. Mm. Okay. And by the way, where it says they're under her husband's authority, um, uh, so I looked that up, and in the Hebrew it says, uh, which means a woman shall stray instead of her husband, um, meaning she's she's going, it's not that she's under her husband's authority, it's that she's going and having relations with someone instead of having those relations with her husband. That husband, right. Uh, that, that's, that's the more literal translation. And, you know, she's, you know, um, yeah. There's a lot of italics in that phrase in my Bible. So Nazarite, now seriously, fellas, now this is—we don't really have much information besides this in regards to the Nazarite. It's—it uh, just seems to be a guy who says, "Hey, I'm going to shave my head, then I'm going to grow my hair for a certain period of time, and I'm not going to drink wine or have anything basically from from the from the grapevine." Uh, there's a couple of other things that he can't do. He can't um, uh, he can't go near a dead body. Uh, he cannot make himself unclean, even even for his like member of his family dies. He can't go to their funeral, I suppose, and. Uh, why? I mean, what is the what is what I want to know is why would you put up your hand and volunteer to take the vow of Nazarite? I'm gonna let Keith field this one because I'm I'm saving I'm gonna I'm saving my card for the next section. <laughs> Keith, have you got any <laughs> idea? Because I've, I've honestly I've thought about it and thought about it. Is there? I mean, is there? Does it somehow make him closer to God somehow? I don't understand. Well, I mean, I guess the best the best the best question is where do we see uh, Nazarites uh, the Nazarite vow being taken in Scripture? And that could be something to look at to ask, where do we see that? What does that mean? How is that? How is their manifestation? And obviously, there's something that happens for that person that 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 takes that vow. That there has mm-hmm. to be some some uh, reason for them wanting to do that. So, well, we see that, right? We see it in uh, in Judges with uh, Samson. Mm-hmm. But but again, I saw well, no. So so there, he doesn't take the vow. There, so the, so the situation of Samson is a little bit different. He doesn't take the vow. It's, it's the situation of being a Nazarite is imposed upon him mm. by an angel uh, through his parents. Yeah. And secondly, he's uh, the Nazarite that number six is talking about that we're reading here is for a set period of time. There's no such thing as a lifelong Nazarite in number six. And that's exactly what, what Samson is. So in a sense, Samson is something that really goes um, beyond what's being described in number six. It's mm. a lifelong situation of being a Nazarite. And that got Samson in a lot of trouble because you're not allowed to be ritually unclean from the dead mm-hmm. if you, uh, you know, if you're a Nazarite. And Samson <laughs> killed lots of people. Yeah, you know, <laughs> really he, so did. he he became ritually unclean from the dead all the time. And and so the explanation that's usually given is well, that only uh, applies to a person who has a period of being a Nazarite. If you're a lifelong Nazarite, then you you are allowed to become ritually unclean from the dead. But in any event, either way. Um, he's sort of a different situation, but that actually raises a question that I want to ask Keith and you, Jono, coming from your traditions, and I know this is maybe a little bit beyond the Torah portion, um, but I'll bring it up anyway. It kind of ties into what we were talking about before. So I, I hear from a lot of people that, you know, Jesus the Nazarene, 
that that actually means he was a Nazarite. And uh, I was wondering if either of you guys have some input on that. Um, anything um, to say on that? All, all I can tell you is that whenever you see a picture of him, whenever there's a painting or, or a depiction of, of Jesus or Yeshua, He's always got long hair, but that's really all I've got to offer on the topic. I mean, what really, you got, Keith? Well, all I know is, uh, uh, unless there was something else in the cup, they were drinking wine. That, yeah, that, oh. That's true. That so, so you're saying wine, so. so you're saying he could, so he couldn't have been a Nazarite because he drank wine. Not 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 according to a Nazarite. Neither a Nazarite or a Baptist. All right. <laughs> I mean, I know right. it comes from it comes from a. Uh, it comes from a verse in Matthew, if I remember correctly. Okay, here it is. So Matthew two twenty three, I think, maybe what you're in reference to. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, what what do you got in the? I'm just curious, Nehemiah, while we're doing this, is that Nazarene? Is that in in regards to? Nazarite, or is it regards to Nazareth, or what, what is it that in regards to? What, what have you got in the in the Shem Tov Hebrew Matthew, perhaps? Right, so that's interesting, because the Shem Tov Hebrew Matthew was, was used in these um, debates with the Catholics, and so a lot of times they would stick in um, a Latin word, especially where there was like a technical term, um, and it seems that instead of the word, the Hebrew word for Nazareth, they've all of a sudden stuck in the Latin word um, Nazareth, which you know, that would just not, that, that would simply be a word that the idea was that when the Jew was reading this and he had to, you know, respond to the, you know, the Catholic in the debates, you know, this is something shame to have did. They, they, you know, didn't want, you know, the Jews to be surprised and say, not Sevet. I never heard of not Sevet. What's that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have this, so they put basically the Hebrew transliteration of the Latin word. Um, although it doesn't say that explicitly, I have to point out. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's what it says. And he shall uh, uh, dwell in a city called Nazareth. Um, and again, the normal Hebrew word for Nazareth would be Nazareth, not Nazareth, mm-hmm. um, to fulfill what was said of the prophet uh, Nazareth or Nazareth, he will be called. Which actually, if you translate that literally as a Hebrew word, the word would be girded, like to gird the loins. He shall be called girded, which I don't know really what that means. So that's why I suspect this is a Latin word, but maybe I'm just not understanding the significance of it in Hebrew. Um, okay. in, in any event, it, it definitely is closer to the word um, uh, Nazarite than it is to the word Nazareth in Hebrew. Okay. In Hebrew Matthew. So is there, uh, Keith, is there some sort of illusion there? Is I mean, where, what prophet are we talking about? Where's the all, I would, all I would say is this, and to me this is not, for me personally, it's not complicated from the standpoint of looking at the vowel and then asking the question about whether or not uh, that vowel translated over to um, the ministry of Yeshua slash Jesus. All I would do is say, okay, what are the things that it means to take the vowel? And then I'd say, are those things he did or not? For example, wine. Did he ever touch a dead body? Was he? I mean, so to me, I don't know. I'm not sure why that is um, of issue. I mean, Mm -hmm. again, looking at the Torah and saying, what does the Torah say? And then asking, how is it applied versus retrofitting i'd ask okay here's what it says about the nazarite vow who who do i see living that particular vow you know was that what is that what paul did for example when he did he was he was he was he making a vow um when he came to the temple i mean I, the I, those are the kinds of things oh, that definitely. Yeah. oh definitely absolutely so talks about so then, hold on, a vow. that's obviously a nazarite okay vow. so then hmm. so then my point is then i would say th- those are the things that i would look at and say that connects here so when they ask if someone says well then th- and then I get it. I really get frustrated with this journal, actually, uh, to be honest. I, this whole thing about picking some little aspect and then saying, is, is this such and such? And they would say, this is such and such. And, and versus, again, over and over and over and over and over and over again, 
what did it say in the Torah? How do we understand that historically, contextually, and uh, linguistically? Mm. Okay, now we don't need to try to put a square into a circle. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't fit, you must quit. Exactly. There it is. Let's will, get to the good part here. Come on. I will just say. Come on with that. I will just say that uh, in my study notes, in the cross references, it takes me back to Judges thirteen five and Judges thirteen. John, no, that's because the study notes are not scripture. I know. I, I know it's, no, no, no. It's the, the commentary. The reason I'm saying I'm trying to be funny because people will say that to me all the time. It says it right here. My wife will come and she'll say to me, "Look, it says in the study notes of this Bible, <laughs> such and such." I go, "Yeah, but honey, what does it say in the verse?" <laughs> and this is what it says. It's, it's, it's the birth of Samson. Uh, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall uh, come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and, sh- and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Um, so is that what you got, Keith? Deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines? That, that, that's, wow. So, yeah. So I'm looking at NIV. He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And the Hebrew word there is Lehoshia. He will save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And that's the same word as in names like Joshua, Yehoshua, which means Yehovah saves. And, of course, obviously, that's the same uh, uh, word as in the name Yeshua. Well, there's the connection. short for you. Here it is. Yeshua is. There it is. Be a so, so if you go. translate this literally, you could say, he will begin to Yeshua Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So isn't that interesting that they stick the word deliverance there because they want to avoid the theological connotations? Uh, incredible. There it is. Maybe. It all makes so much more sense now. Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe that we're st- Keith, we're still waiting for the book. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the book is going to be written. I, I, I'm, starting <laughs> no, no, no. Think, I'm starting to hey, think that the I'm book is just an imaginary, podcast. a figment of his imagination. Some book that he's been writing so what for, what, two Jono? years now? Jono, since he doesn't want to release the book, I'm going to speak, Tor- speak in Torah pearls about the priestly blessing, and he doesn't get to say anything. No, no. <laughs> no, so in all seriousness, I, I believe that by the time this um, that this is broadcast, that my hope is that we'll be past the editing stage and we'll already have the book in the hands of the printers. It'll just be a matter of weeks before it's available to the people. But what we're talking about, of course, is my new book uh, entitled um, – uh, what is the title again? <laughs> it's my new book on the priestly blessing. <laughs> you see, it's, and, it's a figment uh, of his imagination. He makes it up as he goes along. We're never going to see came up it. with the title. Oh, it's called Shattering the Conspiracy of Silence. The Hebrew power of the priestly blessing unleashed yeah. or something like that. And um, and it's about the priestly blessing and really my journey of discovery and understanding this, you know, priestly blessing, which has really been obscured by, by you know, generations of tradition and, and religious agendas. And, and on top of that, there's going to be been a con- an outright conspiracy to hide from the people the key aspect of the priestly blessing. Can I may I read this section where Numbers chapter 22? Through 27, it says, And Yehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus shall you bless the children of Israel, say unto them. Then we have the three-line blessing. Mm-hmm. It says, Literally, May Yehovah bless you and keep you. Yehovah shine his face towards you and be gracious towards you. May Yehovah lift his face towards you and give you peace. And then it concludes in verse 27, And they shall place my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. There's a mm. promise there that Yehovah will bless the people if his name is placed on the people. And a large part of this conspiracy to keep this blessing from really being proclaimed in the way it was commanded is the banning of the name that uh, mm. that scribes, priests, and rabbis have forbidden 
us from speaking this name for the last 1800 years. Mm-hmm. And that ban has been joined in the, in the, the 21st century by the man that Keith saw a few weeks ago in Rome, by Pope Benedict, Mm -hmm. who issued a ban forbidding people to speak the name. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've now gone from the rabbis. And it's interesting, because it started out as a Roman ban under the Emperor Hadrian, who was known as the High Priest, the Pontifus Maximus. Mm -hmm. It was adopted by the rabbis. It's now gone back to the Pontifus Maximus in Rome, re, uh, reinstituting the ban of his predecessor, Hadrian, the Emperor Hadrian. And we've gone full circle now, people. And I think now is the time to break the ban and to do Amen. what it says here, to, to place the name of Yehovah, the creator of the universe, upon his people so that he may bless us. Amen. And, you know, there's this passage that, that changed my life, and it's not from the Bible. It's a passage from the writings of the ancient rabbis, from the Midrash. And it talks about, it says... The reason that Israel prays but is not answered is because they don't pray using God's name. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? The very same rabbis who instituted the ban on the name, who forbade us to speak the ban on the name, are the very same ones that are now telling us that, well, and that's why your prayers aren't answered, because you follow our ban. And I don't know if that's why the prayers aren't answered or not. I mean, that's already you know a theological issue. Mm-hmm. But here, these very same people are telling me, yeah, I mean, look at Scripture. You need to be spe- praying in the name and, and praising the name and calling mm-hmm. upon the name mm-hmm. and blessing the people in the name. And, you know, on that note, uh, if you'll allow me, I want to, you know, there's a lot of weird phrases in this prayer, in this blessing. You know, Yehovah may shine his face towards you. Well, what does that mean? Shine his face. And may he lift his face uh, and even to be gracious towards you. And, and, and I was actually inspired a while ago. Um, uh, it was actually after we did the program together, Jono. Uh, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, I actually went out to, uh, and it may have been the same day, but I don't remember, or a few days before, mm-hmm. but then I went out on the 10th anniversary of the uh, of 9-11, 9-11-2011 I went, to um, Israel's 9-11 memorial, and I was, and I just finished writing the book before the editing phases, but I finished writing the book, and um, and I prayed a prayer uh, in the spirit of the priestly blessing after uncovering the meaning of what it actually meant. Mm-hmm. In other words, translating essentially into modern English what um, what it means when he says, you know, may he shine his face towards you and me be gracious towards you. And, and this is what I came up with. Can I, can I share this prayer Please. and pray this prayer? Please. So this is the prayer I prayed at the 9-11 memorial, the 10th anniversary. I said, O Yehovah, let your name be known from the east all the way into the west, from the rising of the sun all the way into the place of its setting, For you are the one who blesses us and protects us. Mm -hmm. You are the one who smiles at us with a twinkle in his eye. Mm -hmm. You are the one who looks at us, performing miracles overtly and covertly. Mm -hmm. You, Yehovah, are the one who gives us peace. May we have peace in our lives today. And may all mankind soon in our days stand shoulder to shoulder, calling on your name in a time of global peace. Amen. 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 That's beautiful. Keith. No, I just think this, this whole thing is such an... Interesting, and I, I've been sitting and, and watching this whole process with Nehemiah, and what's been so exciting for me is to see uh, him, what I call, um, regarding this issue of the name, if I can say it this way, um, his voice regarding the name has been so um, uh, profound, because, you know, it's it's one thing for uh, different groups of people, different, you know, scholars and folks to attempt to try to add, address this so controversial issue of the name, but here's a guy who's lived this his entire life, and who who has made it a, a point to try and find out how it is practical to him. So that's why, for me, this has been exciting, and I can't wait until the book is done so we can uh, mm-hmm. make it a companion. 
So we can make a companion deal. You know, buy a book and get a second one half price. There you go. <laughs> no, it is an excellent book. It's 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 an incredible book. Uh, I've had the, the the privilege of reading it. I, I I'm telling you now, listeners. The moment it hits the shelves, you want it. Uh, get it quickly. And uh, apparently, it's now Nehemia is telling us it's going to be a matter of weeks. So hopefully, that'll be the case. Nehemia, in in the uh, the prayer that you just read out. Bear in mind, though, this this is this is the Middle East, and it's on Middle Eastern time. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you about uh, one aspect of, of something that you just read out. The prayer that sure. you just read out. Absolutely. The twinkling of the eye. Can you go into some detail there for us? Yeah. Okay, um, and I don't want to spoil the book for people, but I, I guess I will share this. So one of the things that I discovered, I was trying to understand what it means when it says, uh, may he be gracious towards you in verse 25 of number six. What does it mean for God to have grace? And, you know, a lot of things, a lot of times I'll hear from Christians, and, and one Christian in particular really had an impact on me when she said, she said something like, you know, Nehemiah, you're going to burn in hell because Jews got no grace. And <laughs> she was a southern lady. Um, that's my southern accent. Anyway, so, uh, you know, and I thought about that and here I have the priestly blessing where it says, may he be gracious towards you. And this is to the children of Israel is the original context here. Um, and, uh, and so what the blessing that he's promising to his people is to be gracious. And, and it got me thinking, well, what does it mean to be gracious? Maybe she means something different than what I understand. Maybe she's, you know, using some other concept of grace. And I looked up the term grace and, and, and studied it in depth and found out the literal meaning of chen. The word chen is the Hebrew word for grace. The literal meaning is the twinkle in the eye. Mm. And the most common phrase you'll find throughout scripture is he found chen, he found favor in his eyes. Literally, he found grace in his eyes. And what it means is he, a person looked up to God or, uh, or there's also, you see this in human relationships, someone looked up to another human and they had that look, that twinkle in their eye. And the mm. twinkle in the eye is what we think of as, um, um, and my sister is actually a, a, an optometrist. Um, and as an expert on eyes, and I asked her, well, what's, what, you know, physiologically, what's a twinkle in the eye? Where does that come from? And what it actually comes from is, is, you know, when, when someone expresses great emotion and love, their pupil expands and a little tear will well up in their eye sometimes. And those two effects together, the expanding pupil and the tear mm -hmm. then causes more light to reflect. And that's why we think of a twinkle in the eye as a sign of lovingness. And so much so that in, in the 19th century, there were women who would put this stuff in their eye, and I believe it was um, it was some chemical they would put in their eye that would cause their pupil to dilate, and that would make men think that they, you know, were more loving, that the woman loved them more. Oh um, you know, they were basically causing it to artificially happen. What what happens naturally when there's an expression of love, and when it says, "May he be gracious towards you," "May he chen you," "Maybe have that twinkle in his eye towards you," mm. what it means is Yehovah, our heavenly Father, looks down upon us with that look of love in his eye, and we look back on him and we see the, uh, his eye twinkling because he loves us so much. Mm -hmm. That's what grace is about. Grace is the expression of the creator's love. It's not a reward. It's a free gift. And the word free actually comes from the same exact word, the twinkle. The, the, uh, the word free, a, a gift, is, and also a gift is something that you give when, you're t when you have so much love, you just give it. Mm -hmm. You give that gift. And Yehovah loves us so much, he's saying here, and he'll bless us if we are blessed in his name. He'll look at us with that twinkle in his eye. And, and, and that's such an amazing picture of fatherhood. And I know both of you men are fathers and, and have had that opportunity. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to that time when I can look at my child with the twinkle in my eye as our Heavenly Father looks down upon us with that unconditional love. Mm. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah. Hey. Woo! 
Amen. And that's just Keith. That's just a little, little piece of the book, and it's it, it's the rest of it is just as brilliant, if not more. So I, I highly recommend it when it comes out. Yes, I'm telling you, this is we just have to get him to get it done. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's just going to get the. Show. I'm working on it. All right, so keep keep stay tuned, dear listeners. It's going to be out very, very soon. Now, chapter seven really is long, and uh, listeners can read that. And you know, if you have comments to make. Feel free. Okay. Yes. We're done. <laughs> well, let me say this. What do you mean? We got uh, You're going to skip no, the no, longest I, I chapter have... in the Bible? <laughs> no, no, no. I wanted to say Number seven is the longest chapter of the Bible, and you're going to skip it? I don't understand. No, no. What, what, what I was going to say, Jono, was, was using just one line, and this line is repeated. So could we talk about this one line and then and then understand that the line is is, is repeated yep, it's all the way through and it's 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 verse 1 is that what you want no it's just the part where it says um I, i'm just talking about this particular thing it talks about it the actually, day yeah it starts the first day it's um see numbers chapter 7 where does it say the first Look, day i'm doing there? my thing to um, <laughs> keith <laughs> yes. first verses 12 through 17 verse 12 yeah. i'm going to interrupt him the one who brought his offering on the first day and then it says the name of the person, mm-hmm. the tribe of Judah. And then it goes on and goes on and goes on. And what I thought was so cool about this was, again, this whole issue of the, the day, you know, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth. I mean, it's like, and it go, you know, the part that maybe, you know, and we can talk about this just for a second, but it just, it's going through this whole, this whole deal and it goes all the way until the 12th day. Mm-hmm. And it says the name of the person, the leader of the people and of the tribe. The and, the, and the thing that catches my attention was that he's bringing his offering. Mm-hmm. You know, he's bringing this gift, this 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 offering, and um, I I don't know. There, there was something about that that kind of caught me. Was what 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 did that actually look like? Okay, here comes this tribe. You know, you, you see this happen in. Um, what does that look like places. to you? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to go. I don't want to go back to uh, to Rome too much. But there's sort of this uh, this idea after this whole thing happens, and I'm and I'm going to share this. But you know, people they bring on behalf of their congregation or behalf of their group or behalf of their country and for example mexico was there when i was uh, when i was in in rome and and Mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, mexico did is they sent their ambassador and then the ambassador brought a gift and the gift goes up to the pope etc so when when i'm reading this and certainly that's not what we're talking about here but just this idea of this one person bringing this this on behalf of the the tribe because there's 12 tribes and you know, when, when we read through this, and, and, and now you've got me thinking again, we're, we're back in the Vatican, and I'm thinking, on the 12 days of Christmas, my true love such as me. <laughs> right. Is that where we get this from, 12 days of Christmas, and we have gifts and all That's that stuff? That's a good question. I mean, I wonder awesome. about that. I know, the, I, know the, I know there's eight days of Hanukkah. Are there 12 days of Christmas? I don't know. I don't understand it. Now, it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it. He anointed it? What does it say? He anointed it. Yeah. Well, we read about that. He commanded in Exodus how he would anoint, anoint each of the vessels and he the tabernacle. Mach- Everything. Everything was a Mashiach, right? There's he one big Mashiach consecrated it and furnishings in the in the altar and its utensils. And so he anointed them and consecrated them. And there it is. And so we have 12 days, as Keith said, it was 12 days. And basically, we have a summary. If you want the summary, folks, it starts in verse 84. This was the dedication offering uh, from the altar of the 12 leaders of Israel when it was anointed. 12 silver platters, 12 silver bulbs, 12 gold pans. Each silver platter weighed 130 shekels and each... Uh, bowl, uh, wow, 70 shekels, and the silver of the vessels, 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the 12 gold pans uh, full of incense weighed 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 
all the gold of the pans weighed 120 shekels or the oxen there was oxen and there were bulls there were rams and there was grain and there was uh, it was so much and there it is and verse 89 can i read it i love this verse before you you, you end this in verse 89 can i point out two things in this chapter please okay one thing i find very interesting is we're reading here about we're reading about the you know each day it's the nasi who is the the, the could be translated as prince or could be translated as the um as the as the nobleman basically mm-hmm. he's he's the head honcho of each of these tribes and of the 12 tribes and i mm-hmm. think it's interesting that it's the head guy who's coming and he's bringing the gift out of his own pocket he's not saying okay i'm going to now levy a tax from the people so I can, uh, you know, then then give that to the mm. the the tabernacle in my name. He's giving it out of his own pocket, yep. and I think that's really interesting. Instead of the nobleman taking, he's actually giving, which mm-hmm. I, I think is I think is something he's giving to God instead of taking from God. That's I think it's something profound about that. Yeah. And the second thing that I notice in this chapter is we've got twelve days, one after the other, and it made me, and I and I really don't think I thought about this until today when I was reading the portion preparing for today. But if you read in verse forty-eight, it says on the seventh day. The prince of the sons of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, etc., etc. He brought his, um, you know, sacrifice. Brought his bowl and he brought all the things. And they didn't take. They didn't. I don't know what to make of this. I'm just going to kind of think out loud, which is that they. And I think it's, this is actually kind of came as a shock to me. I thought about what about Shabbat? They didn't stop for Shabbat. That's and I'll tell you why point. I thought about that. Uh-huh. Is that um? And this is a controversial thing. I'm going to say that I know in a lot of um uh. You know, Jewish synagogues, one of the big controversies, uh, and what makes it so controversial to me is it's not even a controversy. One of the things they do that I find controversial is they'll uh, take up donations on Shabbat. In Orthodox Jewish synagogues, what they'll do is, and not in everyone, but in many of them, what, what they'll do is they'll, they'll uh, you know, because they don't, they don't ask for the tithe like Christian churches do. They say the tithe goes to the temple. Mm-hmm. So how are we going to fund our synagogue? Well, we've got to ask people for donations. Mm-hmm. And the way that they'll often do that is they'll, uh, the most common thing I'm aware of, at least, is that they'll um, they'll auction off uh, different portions of the Torah, um, giving people the honor of essentially dedicating that portion of the Torah. Wow. So they'll read the you know the Torah portion, just like we're talking about here. They'll read the Torah portion. They'll break it up into seven sections, uh-huh. and in some places they'll say, okay, you can either come up and read this yourself, or you could just you know have it done in your honor mm-hmm. if you don't know how to read, um, or if you don't know how to read with the cancellation or if you can't carry a tune like me. Um, and, uh, and, um, and so they'll auction that off and people, you know, get all excited about it. And they'll like, you know, can I hear 50 shekel? Can I hear a hundred shekel? And and it doesn't occur to anybody that this is, you know, not an appropriate thing to be done on Shabbat. And that's why I say it's controversial. But when I was reading this today, I started to think, you know what? We're definitely prohibited from engaging in commerce on Shabbat. We can see that in Nehemiah 13, Mm -hmm. where Nehemiah shut the gate so that the merchants wouldn't come in and sell on Shabbat. But, you know, maybe we're not forbidden from supporting, um, you know, the the service of God. Maybe, mm. in other words, um, you know, they didn't say, okay, it's Shabbat. We're not going to bring the donations here on Shabbat. We're going to continue to do that on Shabbat. I'm, I'm just thinking out loud. But I don't another, know. Another thing that um, comes to mind I, when you I, I have mixed feelings about it. When you highlight this, uh, and I remember that you uh, you you brought our attention to a particular verse uh, when the tabernacle was completed and all the work that went into the tabernacle. And uh, and how the rabbis take uh, a particular verse that says uh, that begins with the word but or surely depending on how. Right. Uh, and one of the things, anyhow, one of the things that you highlighted Exodus was that uh, one of the prohibitions, Exodus thirty-five, one of the prohibitions was taking something 
from the, the uh, a private dwelling out into the public. And now I'm reading this, and I'm thinking thirty one thirteen. Sorry, thirty one. Exodus thirty one thirteen. Okay, thirty one thirteen. And uh, so here we are, and and they've definitely done this, right? They've walked out of their house with with the with a golden bowl or with whatever it is, and they've gone to take it to the tabernacle. Right. Interesting. It just it, even it, on, even even on Shabbat. Even on Shabbat. Okay. Right. Just makes me think. Just makes me think as well. Keith, would you please read for us uh, verse eighty nine? When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he, Yehovah, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony, and he spoke with him. And I mean to tell you what, if we didn't say anything else, if we didn't talk about anything else, if we didn't have any other verse, I mean, this to me just, I mean, I just, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's the longest chapter in, 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 the, in the Torah. But it ends and like that. Mm. It, it ends like that. I'm thinking, wow. I mean, good things uh, come to those who wait. This this verse is one that I just so as you I love read it, verse. as you read it, Keith, it, it, does it does it say? I mean, do you get the idea that Moses walks in and speaks to Yehovah, and the sound of his voice of Yeho- of, of our of our Creator's voice comes from between the cherubim above the ark and speaks to him? I mean, I'm. I mean, you know, for me, when I read this, I just get this, this concept, this idea that this is where they have their, this is where they have their dialogue. I mean, he's going in there and there's a dialogue. Now, uh, Moses, here's the situation here. Oh, okay. What about such and such and such? Well, such and I mean, I'm like, whoa, (laughs) how amazing, how, uh, how powerful must it have been for Moses to just go in and to have these conversations. I say don't just just go in, but the idea of of going in and having this conversation is just just amazing. Wow. I got to point out a little, I think this is a Torah pearl that I never really noticed before, which is uh, in Numbers, so so here we got Numbers 789, and uh, you were reading from the NIV, Keith, I guess, and it says uh, he heard the voice speaking to him. And uh, but then you said something, Keith, right, just now, which which I think is really profound. You said he had a dialogue, and yes. uh, but that but that's not what it says in the NIV. The voice was speaking to him, and he was standing there passive and just receiving every word that was spoken. There was no dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, JPS Jewish Publication Society says he would hear the voice addressing him. Again, he's passive. He's just sitting there hearing the word spoken. Uh, that's what it implies, at least. Uh, what do you got, John? You got the New King James, right? He heard yeah, the can. voice of one speak, speaking to him. Mm. And uh, but what it says in Hebrew is, and I'm looking at my different translations here and seeing if anybody got this. So there's, there's there, you know, Hebrew has uh, a crash course in Hebrew. Hebrew has seven binyanim or conjugations that every uh, verb can theoretically fit into, and that changes the meaning and the connotation. Mm-hmm. And the normal mm-hmm. word for speaking uh, would be midaber. Which is with the shva in the mem and uh, and is what's called pl and that would be speaking to him. But what it has here is midaber elav, uh, which is the hit pael. It's one of the other of the seven conjugations, and the hit pael here implies that there is it's it, <laughs> it implies that there is a dialogue. So midaber elav is he speaking back and forth with him, uh, and that's totally lost in the English. That subtle difference of in, and really, in the Hebrew, here it's, and if you don't know Hebrew, don't worry about this, but the bottom line is it's a small difference of one of the tiny vowels. Instead of a shva, it's a chirik, mm-hmm. and that changes it from he was speaking to him, he's talking at him, to he's speaking with him, that there's a dialogue of him speaking back and forth with him. That's pretty yeah. cool. Well, let me, can I give a confession, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, to Jono and to Nehemiah? 
the the yes. confession is, you know, I I know I'm supposed to be the Methodist with the NIV, but I actually took a little look at the Hebrew also of number 789, and what caught me Nehemiah beyond that was the actual yeah. end of the verse, because in the NIV it says this: it says, and uh, and above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony. Period. Then it says, mm-hmm. and he spoke with him. Now I don't know if mm-hmm. your sentence starts with and. It's a new sentence in my in my in my NIV, mm-hmm. and he spoke with him. So Jonah, real quick, what does yours say? And then I want to share one little thing, and then Nehemiah, you can uh, you can wrap it up. But what what is the I'm end glad, of the verse say for you, Keith? I'm glad you're highlighting this because I've actually underlined this. It says, "Thus he spoke to him," and I wonder how do we determine who is the he and who is the him? Well, here's the only thing I wanted to say is is that what what kind of excited me, and and again, I'm supposed to be the NIV guy, but I I did peek. And, and when I looked at number 789, the one really cool thing that I did when I was going through the study, and I'm almost on my 10-year anniversary, I was studying uh, with Nehemiah and back and forth. But one of the things I asked him, when I opened up my Hebrew Bible, there were at least four different things that I looked at that I said I wanted to learn. I wanted to understand the consonants. I wanted to understand the vowels. I wanted to understand the accents. And I wanted to understand the Masoretic notes. So that if you open up your Hebrew Bible, those are the four things that jumped out at me. The consonants, the vowels, the accents, and then the Masoretic notes. Mm-hmm. So one of the little things here is a, is a simple little simple little thing in the Hebrew. Um, there's a, a, um, a word that has a little accent under it, and then there are two words after it. And the accent, what the English translators determined was that accent means we're going to end the verse and then start. The NIV basically said we're going to end the verse there, and then we're going to say, and he spoke to him as a different sentence, as a new sentence. Whereas in the Hebrew, it's just basically a, what we call them, the, can, can I use it this way? It's kind of like a, um, the pause, the, the middle of the verse. It's mm-hmm. not really the middle of the verse, but it's basically saying, okay, here's a, a place where you'd have a pause. Then it says, and he spoke to him. So we can look at that and do what uh, Nehemiah and I, um, which he taught me to do, was sort of break up the verse Try to find out where the middle of the verse is. Find out where the where the where the connections is. And this is kind of the grammatical work that takes place in Hebrew. When I read that, and I say, and and it ends it, and it says, and um, and it says here, uh, said on the ark of the testimony, and then and he spoke with him. I'm saying to myself, that was the issue that made me say, well, they were having a dialogue. <laughs> so. so okay. So do you? And right. I think that actually fits. That, that's yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Jonah. So I'm just, I'm just trying to. So well, let me let me just clarify. I'm finally, waxing on, and you guys are going to stop me again. Are you kidding? No, me? no, Keith. I want to know. So who is the he and who is him? Uh, is is that Yehovah's Witnesses or NRSV? How, so the NRSV solves that New Revised Standard Version. It has uh, he would hear the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant from between the two cherubim. Thus it spoke to him. That is the voice of the Lord. So the NRSV doesn't even allow your question, Jono, to be asked. In other words, right. the question you're asking is, the NIV says, and he spoke with him. Who spoke with who? And the NIV that I have in front of me, at least on my computer, doesn't have a big H for either of those. So, so it's up to you to decide, did, and he spoke to him, Yehovah spoke to Moses, or and he spoke to him and Moses spoke back to Yehovah. That's, that's so interesting. Um, the JPS has, thus he, capital H, spoke to him, small h, meaning Yehovah spoke to Moses. But contextually, it makes a lot more sense. He heard the voice speaking with him back and forth from upon the chair, the the kaporet, the mercy seat. Mm-hmm. And Moses spoke to him, meaning Moses yes. responded, spoke back. That, that makes a lot more sense. From that's what I thought. And so well, that's, that's why that's I highlighted it. Because, and Jono, that, that's, that's what Keith listen, saying. I'm trying, cool. I'm, I'm trying to get my little, my little, little uh, <laughs> you know, thing on the wall. <laughs> 
I'm supposed to be the dumb Methodist, but all I'm telling you is, (laughs) no, no, I just want to say this. I think that what just asking those questions, and you know, some people get overwhelmed. Well, you guys are talking about the vowels and the consonants and and, 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 and all this stuff. Mm. But you know what you can do? And I know, Jonah, you do this, and I think this is awesome that you do it. It's something that Nehemiah and I used to always have to do, and it's why we do it throughout Torah pearls. He will say this, Jonah, what does your version say? Keith, what does your version say? Uh, what does the other version say? And, and even if you don't know the Hebrew, it really gives you a chance to slow down. So, for example, great verse, longest chapter in the Torah, mm. and at the end we've got this thing, and just three little words or four little words at the end of the chapter, which we might have just skipped over, actually ends up being a huge pearl if we simply look at the different English versions. So what I've continued to do is to, to try to do that same thing, but what I've had, I've had the benefit of doing is looking at these four things, consonants, vowels, accents, and notes. And that's where so many of these things sort of, you get to ask even more questions. I wish you, I wish the answer was always clear. It's not always clear. Mm. But one thing we can do through prayer, discernment, having the information is I think we can come to some pretty good conclusions. And this is just one example where I'd have to stand up against the NRSV that said they want to solve it for us and say, I'm not, I don't think it's just quite that simple. Let's look at some other stuff. And that's an example where, boom, mm. you know, that's context historical. would say uh, that, that this is the dialogue, which we have two witnesses in this verse, the uh, the mid the bear and, and the, uh, the, the actual breaking up of the verse that would say, I think it's pretty clear that they are having a dialogue. Amen. Thank you for okay. highlighting that, because that was one of the questions that I asked when I, when I because in, in the New King James, I've got a capital he, uh, capital H, he spoke to lowercase him, and I thought, you know, I wonder if that's the case, and I wonder how that is identified in the Hebrew, and I'm really glad that you highlighted that. Because awesome. it does make sense to say that Moses, that thus Moses spoke to Yehovah. So that's great. Man, I mean, Appreciate it. And I'm that good. is wrapping up the Torah Pearls for this week. Thank you, Keith Johnson and Nehemia Gordon. Believe it or not, Nehemia does have a book coming out very, very soon. Another very one soon. that you can look forward to. Conspiracy of Science. Looking forward to that. And uh, not only that, but Keith has a video documentary that's not too far down the track either. Oh, and boy. Don't boy, put that oh, pressure boy. on me. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you've been talking about it for so yeah, I was over at the Vatican and I was, it was the Peter there, it was the Pope. The, so we're looking forward to that as well. And so we appreciate you guys and we look forward to that. And these programs are available free to download on the Torah Pels page. You can uh, get this program and many others as well. And if these programs have been a blessing to you, you can also show your support by donating at truthtou.org. That's truth number two, letteryou.org. Nekar in Beha Alotcha. Excellent. Numbers numbers 8, 1 to 12, 16. And until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word. Shalom. Shalom.